We're in Exodus chapter 26. We've been doing a verse-by-verse study through the book of Exodus. Um, We're picking back up somewhere around, I think, verse 31 this morning of Exodus chapter 26. I didn't want to... We were trying to get through the whole book of... or the whole chapter of Exodus chapter 26 last week, and we ran out of time. But I didn't want to just continue on into chapter 27 without... um, accounting and going through this last part, this last section, it's important. But when we ended last week, well, let's pray before we begin. Let's, 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 let's bow our head in prayer as we come to God's Word. Lord, thank you for this time of worship and praise. And, and God, I pray that it was and is as we continue to worship you through the study of your Word and honor you, Lord, as we put your Son Jesus first. We pray, God, that it would all be pleasing to you. Thank you for each person here. And Lord, for those who couldn't make it this morning, who, who normally come, we ask God just a blessing over their lives. And um, we even think of some of our, 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 our church uh, family here who are um, fighting fires in, in various places. And think of Nate, he comes to mind, Lord, as well. And just, just be with those who aren't here, watch over them. And God, for those of us who are here, we ask that you would meet us and Meet us as we study your word through the the empowering and revelation that you bring through your Holy Spirit. God, we love you and we praise you. And um, Lord, you're so good to us. We thank you for that hope of eternal life and that you've given to us through your son, Jesus. And I pray, God, that there's anyone here this morning who is struggling um, either with their relationship with you or uncertain of their own salvation. I pray, God, that they would see um, that you've taken care of it through your son Jesus and that they can put faith in, in the person of Jesus as, as the son of God, God in the flesh, and in the work of Jesus where the atoning sacrifice was made on the cross for the payment of our sin debt so that we might have eternal life with you and forgiveness of sins. I pray, Lord, if anyone's struggling with that decision, with, with committing and submitting their life to you, whether it's on a day-to-day basis as we struggle with that as just sinful believers, Lord, or someone who's yet just holding on to their own life and their own way of doing things and not allowing you to be there, Lord. I pray, God, today that those, those walls, those barriers, those things that are keeping them from you and from that truth, Lord, would be, would be um, taken down. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, well, we ended last week reading about the plans that God had given Moses for the construction of the tabernacle. And we've been reading about that really for some time, but we're specifically now looking at the, the inner tent-like structure. It's called the holy, holy place, the most holy place. Um, we talked about the two compartments that it had, the two sections, the most holy and then the holy, holy place, or, the, or the, 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 the holy of holies and then the holy. And it, it, lots of different names in Scripture. Uh, I like to refer to it as the holy tent of meeting, just not as the, as the tabernacle alone, although some people would say that the tabernacle is specific to just what we're studying about now. And, and um, either way you want to look at it, it was the place where God was going to call his people to, where he would in turn come to them and make himself known. His, he would manifest his presence um, before his people, dwell with his people, and then the, the priests would, would be the intercessors for that relationship. This was the place. This was the piece of ground, if you will, and the structure that sat on it. And at this time, being the tabernacle, it was mobile. It, it went where, where the people went wherever God went and the tabernacle went. Later on, when they come into the promised land, we know that the, ta- the tabernacle was replaced with the temple, a more permanent structure. And, 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 and the, the same um, plans, if you will, applied for both. And, and as we were studying this holy tent of meeting last week, we talked about the four, first of all, the four different layers of curtains, their makeup, their composition, their color, some with embroidering, different materials that they were made with. We talked about these four different curtains that made up the, the roof, if you will, the roof-like structure um, of of this of this this tabernacle or of this tent of meeting, that's what we were talking about. But we also talked about the construction of its walls, not just the 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 curtain that that laid over the top, but the the construction of its walls. And um, we know that it was built with forty eight specific gold boards that were interlocked together, held together with an elaborate system of of other gold bars that run on the outside and through these, and they were all linked together with, with rings and sockets and couplers and, and, and 
Um, that's the way that God had designed it to hold them all together. And before time ran out, we talked about two specific sockets, if you remember. I drew our attention to that. Two specific sockets that were made out of silver, um, two for each one of these boards, and, and these sockets acted as a foundation for which the gold boards would rest upon, which were the walls of this holy temple meeting. And they kept the tabernacle. In doing so, they kept the tabernacle from coming in contact with the earth. And in, in, in when we were talking about that, in doing so, we considered the spiritual illustration as it applied to our lives, as it connected to these silver sockets. Um, and it was in light of the fact that the sacrificial system and the, 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 it used this, the, 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 the law and the sacrificial system used silver um, exclusively as an offering for redemption and for the payment of sins. And uh, alongside with other animal sacrifices to go along with that. But silver was incorporated into it. And because the same precious metal, silver, was used to separate the tabernacle from the dirt of the earth, it, it, it points us forward to look at the redeeming work of Jesus. The redemption that we have through him and the payment that he made um, for us uh, with his own life, in that Jesus, who became our sin offering and redeemed us from the debt that we owed, has separated us, and he keeps us separate from this world which is passing away. And this is why we must stand, the Bible tells us, in faith. Stand in faith upon the work that he's done for us as our Redeemer and as the payment for our sins. He's what keeps us separate. He's the silver as it relates to in the Old Testament in regards to what we're reading here. Um, now, as we continue on this morning and finish out chapter 26, picking back up in verse 31, what we're being told or what we read about in these last verses of this chapter are three final things that are specifically connected with the construction of the holy meeting place. There's other things that we're going to read about in regards to the, 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 the tabernacle as a whole, but in regards to this, this tent or this holy meeting place, there's three additional things. There's the veil of separation, the screen door, um, um, for the entrance into the, 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 the tent. And also we're going to read about how the furniture, which we, we've already read about the furniture that was inside the tabernacle, we're going to read now that there was a specific placement for it, that God didn't even leave this up for them to figure out. He was like, okay, this is going to go here, that's going to go there, and there's a, there was a, a, a reason for this as well. So in verse 31, if you'll look there, let's read. Please follow along. It says in verse 31, it says, you shall make a veil woven of blue, purple and scarlet thread, and fine woven linen. It shall be woven with an artistic design of cherubim. You shall hang it on four pillars. And perhaps if you have that um, uh, diagram that I gave you last week, you, you can maybe picture it in your mind. So you have this, this screen or this curtain um, and, and it's hanging upon four pillars of this acacia wood again, and they're also overlaid with gold. The hooks shall be gold upon four sockets of silver. And you shall hang the veil from the clasps. Then you shall bring the Ark of the Testimony in there, which is also, again, we've talked about this, the Ark of the Covenant. Bring it in there behind the veil. The veil shall be a divider for you between the holy place and the most holy. And you should put the mercy seat upon the, 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 the ark of the testimony in the most holy. And you shall set the table outside the veil. And that's the table of showbread or for the showbread. We've talked about that. And also the lampstand across from the table on the side of the tabernacle towards the south. And you shall put the table on its north side. You shall make a screen for the door. Of the tabernacle, woven of blue, purple, and scarlet thread, and a fine woven linen made by a weaver. And you shall make it for the screen five pillars of acacia wood, and overlay them with gold. Their hooks shall be gold, and you shall cast five sockets of bronze for them. Okay, we'll stop there, but we're going to also get into chapter 27 today as well. But as we begin to read through these verses, and we look in, first of all, at this veil that is um, uh, to be inside the tabernacle, the tent of meeting here, 
we see that just like the, the, the first covering, which we read about last week, that went over the tabernacle as, as a roof kind of structure for it, that the very first covering that went over the meeting place, um, that this veil of separation was similar. It was made of the, the same fine linen cloth, and it was also woven with artistic designs of cherubim. And so right away we see that this same, same um, uh, picture is being presented when, when the priest would walk into the tabernacle, even though there was this additional curtain hanging down, he would still see the angels all about him. And I, I, I want to just re, re, restate that again because I, I like it so much from when we go to the book of Revelation in chapter 5 and we get this glimpse into the throne room of God and the comparison to the tabernacle with these angels all around, it gives us an awesome picture of what it's going to be like in heaven. It's filled with angels. And what they're doing is they're praising God. They're worshiping God. They're singing, worthy is the Lamb, holy, holy, holy. And, and, and they offer, it says, their praise and worship of God continually. And, and the tabernacle was an earthly representation of what was to be going on in heaven. And God's given them all of the details here. And, and obviously, the, the tabernacle was no, is nothing in comparison to what heaven's going to be like, but yet God is giving them these illustrations. So even with the veil that was hanging there, they still saw the same linen as they looked up or they looked all the way around. That's what they saw. They saw the gold pillars or the gold, the gold pillars. They saw the gold walls. And then they saw this beautifully woven artistic, um, um, uh, beautifully woven fine linen with the artistic designs of these angels all around. And then it was hung on four pillars, it says. Same wood, acacia wood. And if, you're, if you're interested, sometimes I, I read this and I go, why acacia wood? And, and maybe you don't care, but um, apparently it has uh, acacia wood. It has a, a, a substance in it. Um, it's very rich in, in uh, a pitch or a tar-like material. And, and so it offers two things. Naturally, it, it, it prevents insects from, from um, uh, damaging the wood. It's, it's a natural thing there. And then also um, it, that, 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 that pitch or resin that was in this particular wood also acted as a preservative. And when you think about it, the tabernacle from this point until when the children of Israel would actually build the temple was a long period of time. So there was this longevity that was attached to this wood even though it was covered in gold. So there were again acacia wood is what's used throughout the whole thing. It's a practical reason for why it was chosen when you begin to see the structure or the makeup of that particular kind of wood. And again, these pillars with which the veil hung were overlaid with gold, and then they were as 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 like the walls of the tent of meeting, these pillars which sat inside also rested on the silver sockets. Same kind of idea of 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 of, of keeping the tabernacle separate from the ground, from touch, coming in contact with this world, with this earth. And even though the Bible never makes mention of the thickness of the veil, especially with it being linen, right? Um, it, it, linen could be something that could be easily seen through. And even though the Bible here never makes mention of the thickness of the veil, there's the early Jewish writings, which is the Mish, one of the ones is the Mishnah, which is part of the Talmud. It, it tells us that um, in, in there, it says that the, the veil which hung in Herod's temple, which was the temple that was standing in the time of Jesus' day, that it was four fingers thick, the veil. It's pretty thick. Um, it specifically says, it says, as thick in the Mishnah, it says as thick as... Um, a man's four fingers, so that no one could possibly see into the most holy place, to where the Ark of the Covenant rested, and to where the, the mercy seat was at on top of it, and more importantly, where the presence of God, the glory of God, was manifested there above the Ark. And according to verse 33, if you look here, we see that the purpose of this veil was to be, first of all, as a, to act as a divider. It, it separated the tabernacle into two compartments. The first compartment was the holy place, um, and it was the larger of the two rooms where the showbread on the one side and then the, the, the golden lampstand, the menorah, rested on the other side. And then we know that right before the veil in this particular room was the altar of incense. And it's a cool thing because the altar of incense and its purpose, we didn't really get into it too much, but 
And any time that the, the priest was in there ministering and making a sacrifice before the Lord, that the, the incense was placed on this altar, a special mixture that we'll read about later, and then, then the smoke of the incense would rise up before God. And, and, and in that, it's an illustration of, of how the, the prayers of the people, the, the intercessions that the priest would bring would be rising up, rising up to the Lord. And that was all taking place in the larger part of this, of this tent of meeting. And then the second compartment, the smaller of the two, was called the Holy of the Holies, the most holy place. And, and like I said, it's where the Ark of the Covenant was kept. But more importantly, in addition to separating these two rooms as a divider, um, we, we see that the veil also acted as a barrier. Not just a divider, but it was to be a barrier. And the only one who could go beyond the veil into the most holy place was the high priest. None of the other priests were allowed to, and certainly no average Jewish person, unless you were of the tribe of Levi, specifically one of the descendants of Aaron, uh, could you ever minister in the tabernacle, or in the, and then only the high priest, who, who, who ruled and reigned for his whole life as high priest, he could only go into that holy of the most holy place. And he could only go in there once a year. Once a year was he permitted in there, and it was on the Day of Atonement. And, and when you begin to read through the law, you see that there were many things that had to take place. First of all, he had to come into the holy place, the most holy place, only on the Day of, present, uh, of Atonement, but he came into this holy place where the presence of God was manifested. He had to come with the blood of a lamb, a sacrificed animal that had been sacrificed specifically for the sins of the people. Furthermore, law commanded that the high priest also go through a whole, a whole a plethora, if you will, of various ceremonial things that related to spiritual purification, from, from the clothes that he wore to, the, to, the, to, the, to the, the washings that he had to undergo, purification ceremonies. And, and he had to go through all these things, and he had to go through them in a specific way, a specific order. Couldn't leave nothing out. He had to do all that that one day of the year before entering in. And if he failed to bring the blood of the animal, uh, or, and here's another thing, if the, sacrifice, the animal was, that was sacrificed was, did not have, it was, it was not without a spot or without a blemish, which simply means that it had no injury, um, during its lifetime, uh, a scar or a scratch, or that, that's what it means with to be without blemish, but also to be without spot means that it could not have had a birth defect, without spot, without blemish. It had to be a, 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 a it, well, it was a picture of Jesus Christ who was perfect in every way moving forward. And so that the animal was not in this way, or if he failed to, to bring the blood, and if he did not properly go through the ceremonial purifications that were required before, by the law before he entered in to the, to the most holy place on the Day of Atonement, God made it clear that he'd be killed, that God would kill him. In fact, Jewish tradition tells us that the other priests would even tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest so that he could be drugged back out if something went wrong while he was in there. If he didn't do everything right and he was struck down, nobody wanted to go in there and retrieve the body. You can imagine why. So they... They, 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 tore, they, they tied that rope on his ankle to, to, to pull him back out. And, um, but once the high priest was past the veil of separation and into this most holy place, then he would take the blood of that animal, of that lamb, of that sacrificed animal, and he would sprinkle it on top of the ark where the mercy seat rested. And it would be sprinkled as an offering for the sins of the people. And here's the cool thing about it, is when the priest, high priest came out of the most holy place, out of the temple of tabernacle of meeting, and, 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 and shown himself to all the people that were there, and he came back out alive, it was a sign to the people that the sacrifice that had been brought to the Lord was accepted, and that their sins had been atoned for, their sins had been forgiven. And we see how these things of history, I think, have great application for our lives today when we connect them to what the New Testament teaches us about Jesus. Specifically in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 12. This tells us that in dying for our sins, in dying for our sins, Jesus came 
as our high priest of the better things that are to come. With his own blood, he, spiritually speaking, it says, entered into the most holy place once and for all to make atonement for our sins, and, to, and, and in doing so, he obtained our eternal redemption. Through the veil of separation. In fact, in Matthew chapter 27, when we begin to think about that and you think about the suffering of Christ, the passion of Christ, and the death of Christ on the cross, when you come to Matthew chapter 27, which records some of these things, in verses 50 and 51, Matthew writes and it says that when Jesus breathed his last breath, that that thick veil of separation, remember, which hung in Herod's temple as a barrier to keep people separated from the presence of God because of sin, it says that that veil, that four-finger thick veil, was torn in half from the top to the bottom when Jesus breathed his last breath. And even though the priest, history teaches us, that the Levitical priest sewed that veil back together, Stupid. <laughs> Even though they, they, they sewed that veil back together, in the book of Acts, in chapter 17, verse 24, it makes it very clear in telling us that at that time, when the veil was torn, when Christ offered Himself as a sacrifice, it says that God moved out of the temple and would never again dwell in the house made with men's hands. I don't know about you, that's pretty awesome. So with the tearing of the veil at the moment of Jesus' death, what, was, what, was, what happened is, is the whole world, specifically the priests at that time, but the whole world was given this visual demonstration of how there is no longer a barrier to keep us out of the most holy place and from the presence of God. But when we understand that as believers, I want to challenge you, do you live your life like that? Do we live our life with that understanding? That there's nothing that now separates us for, who, for those of us who have been saved, for those of us who have put our faith in Jesus Christ. There's no longer a veil, a barrier that separates us from God. Do we consider that? Because when Jesus rose from the grave and showed himself to be alive, you know what? It was a demonstration of how the atoning sacrifice of his blood was accepted by God and that our sins had been forgiven. You've heard me say this on an Easter Sunday morning, that, that, that our Savior, our high priest, when he rose from the grave and he showed himself to be alive to many, it was the same thing as the high priest coming out alive and going, God accepted the sacrifice. Sin has been forgiven. In light of this, Hebrew 10 tells us that because this middle wall, in chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews, it tells us that because this middle wall of separation is now gone, that we should be confident to enter into the presence of God by the blood of Jesus, by this new and living way, it says, which He has consecrated for us, which He has literally set apart for us. One of the commentators that I read and study is a man by the F, name of F.B. Meyer. He's an old dude. Dead a long time ago. For some reason, I like the, old, the dead old guys. <laughs> but F.B. Meyer, in his Through the Bible commentary, and I, I don't usually quote commentaries very often. I think God's Word is, stands alone. But, but this, this is just in regards to application to our own lives. Are we living confidently as believers in knowing that the veil of separation has been torn down. And it's a struggle, guys, because what happens though is even though our sin's forgiven and we've been made right with God and we can come into the presence of God, I don't know about you, but I still sin. And man, that sin that I struggle with can cause doubt. It can raise fear. And in one sense, it can keep me even though there's no barrier, it can keep me living my life in, in, in a state of unbelief where I don't come confidently into the presence of God. And when I don't do that, I don't receive everything that God has for me, everything that Jesus died for for me. God is waiting there to give it to me, but I, I hold back because of that, that lack of confidence that I have 
been given through Christ. Listen to what he says. F.B. Meyer, in, his, in his, his Through the Bible Commentary, says this. There are many who never get beyond the dividing veil. They know the brazen altar of atonement. Okay, we're going to talk about that in chapter 27. It's where the sacrifices were made, right? And sometimes when we're living our lives, we think that we become acceptable to God by the sacrifices that we make, right? So he says, he says they know the brazen altar of atonement, the laver of daily washing, meaning the priest, as there, there was this bronze laver, or it was often called a sea, um, we haven't talked about that yet, where the ceremonial washing took place for purification. And so again, it's, 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 it's a thing that's tied to a work that one might do in order to find themselves acceptable before the Lord. So they know the altar of sacrifice. They know the bronze laver, which was also in the court. Again, a, 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 something that I got to do. The golden altar of incense. They know that, but they never enter in, he says, to the blessed intimacy of communion which sees the Shekinah glory of God between the cherubim and the blood-sprinkled mercy seat. And he writes this because the veil, which was this constant reminder. Now think about this in your own personal life. The veil, which was a constant reminder that, that sin has rendered us unfit for the presence of God, that, that, that veil, in a sense, is sewn back together in our minds by the fear of unbelief that fills us when we hopelessly fix our eyes upon our own faults and on our own failures rather than on the grace of God. You've heard me say this before. One of my favorite definitions of the grace of God is the work of God. And I would challenge you as you're reading through Scripture and you see that, great, that word grace, just insert that. That's not by any means the, the totality of the definition of grace, but when I see the grace of God mentioned, I go, the work of God, the work of God, the work of God. And so we get our eyes hopelessly fixed on our faults and failures rather than on the grace of God, the work of God that is ours through the person of Jesus Christ, our sacrifice, our Savior. I challenge you this morning, as God, I think, is challenging us to remember, to never forget that that veil of separation, that divider, that barrier was torn in two to never be sewn together in our hearts or in our minds. That God looks at us and He says, you're accepted. Come into my presence with boldness, with confidence, and receive all that I have for you. As we move on into chapter 27, if you look at verse 1, it goes on to give further instructions for the construction, if you will, of the overall tabernacle. And, and now talking about this bronze altar, the place where the sacrifices were made, God said, you shall make an altar of acacia wood, five cubits long and five cubits wide. The altar shall be square and its height shall be three cubits. You shall make its horns on four corners and its horns shall be one piece with with it, so it's, it's integrated or, or molded together with the, the, the actual altar itself. And you shall overlay all of it with bronze. Verse 3, you also shall make its pans to receive its ashes and, and its shovels and its basins and its forks and its fire pans. And you shall make all of its utensils of bronze. Then you shall make a grate for it, a network of bronze and a network you shall make four bronze rings at its corners, and you shall put it under the rim of the altar beneath, that the network may be midway up the altar. So this bronze, bronze grating rested down inside of it. It's, it's a fire pit, right? Some of you guys have some of these in your backyard. <laughs> it, 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 and maybe you have a barbecue, a grill, it's a similar kind of process. It's more elaborate. It served a different purpose, but that's what we're talking about here. One big barbecue pit. <laughs> And you shall make poles for the altar, poles for the acacia wood, and overlay them with bronze. The poles shall be put in the rings, and the poles shall be on the two sides of the altar to bear it. So again, like the Ark Covenant that had the rings on the outside, there was a ring on all four corners, and the poles went through it. And any time that this was transported, the priests were to move it by grabbing these poles and, and carrying it along. He said, you shall make it hollow with boards as it was shown to you on the mountain so they shall make it. And man, verse 8 is so key to this whole discussion because we see that command 
and it, alongside the, 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 the giving of the plans given over and over and over again where God says, do it my way, not your way, right? Do it my way, do it my way, do it my way. And you shall also make the court of the tabernacle, verse 9, for the south side there shall be hung for the court made of fine woven linen, 100 cubits long for the side. So it's, we're talking about the outer walls of the whole tabernacle now. And, it, and in verse 10, and, it, and it's 20 pillars, and their 20 sockets shall be bronze. So on, on one side is what we're talking about with the, 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 the linen walls stretched in between. It says, the hooks of the pillars and their bands shall be silver. Likewise, all the length, along the length of the north side, there shall be hangings 100 cubits long with its 20 pillars and its 20 sockets with the bronze of the bronze and of the hooks of the pillars and the bands of the silver. And along with the width of the court on the west side there shall be hangings of 50 cubits with their 10 pillars and their 10 sockets. And the width of the court on the east side shall be 50 cubits. And so really quickly, what's the dimensions that are being given here, I'll talk about it, but picture a rectangle if you will. That's, that's what the dimensions and the materials of the outer walls of the tabernacle that we're reading about and how it was put together. And so in verse 14, it says, the hangings on one side of the gate shall be 15 cubits with their three pillars and their three sockets. And on the other side shall be hangings of 15 cubits with their three pillars and three sockets. So each side is, is, is equal, um, but not, not, not square in its dimensions. For the gates of the court, verse 16, there shall be a screen, 20 cubits long. So now we're talking about the gate, the main entrance. 20 cubits long, woven of blue and purple and scarlet thread and fine woven linen made by a weaver. It shall have four pillars and four sockets and all the pillars around the court shall have bands of silver and their hooks shall be of silver and their sockets of bronze. And the length, and notice that's the only thing that's different. Everything else is resting on sockets of silver right? But here, it's, socket of, it's sockets of bronze. And, and anytime you see bronze, we'll talk about it, it speaks of, 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 of judgment or of refining and uh, purifying. And, and so that's what's taking place as represented by the bronze rather than the silver as you're now entering into the tabernacle. There's a, a purification, there's a refining. It's a cool picture. Um, and, and, and that's needed, right, in order to come into the presence of God so from the very moment. And, and it's interesting when you consider that in relationship to all the things that took place inside this courtyard that we're going to be reading about. And so the length of the court, verse 18, shall be 100 cubits, and the width 50 cubits throughout, and the height 5 cubits made of fine woven linen and of the sockets of bronze, in its sockets of bronze. And the utensils of the tabernacle for all of its service and, all, and its pegs and the pegs of the court shall be of bronze. So everything in, inside the court itself is no longer silver or gold. It's always this bronze. And you shall command the children of Israel, verse 20, that they bring your pure oil of pressed olives for light to cause the lamp to burn continually. And this is the gold lamp stand that's inside the tent of meeting in the tabernacle, verse 21, in the tabernacle of meeting outside the veil, which is before the testimony, the holy place, Aaron and his son shall tend to it, the, the, the priest, Levitical priest, from evening until morning before the Lord, and it shall be a statue forever to the generation, to their generations on behalf of the children of Israel. So it's a light, it's a testimony, and it's, it's something that's to be handed down from generation to generation. And that's key, and hopefully that's where we'll end at this morning. So Imagine with me, if you will, you're there, you've come from, from wherever you live inside the promised land, maybe some of you are of the tribe of Benjamin, others are of the, of, 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 um, the tribe of, um, well, 12 of them, pick any one that you want. But you're there, you've come to the tabernacle to worship, and, and you've brought your sacrifice, and the first thing that you see when you come is this white linen fencing all around. That's described here in verses 9 through 19. And these walls, they're seven and a half feet tall. So almost none of us could see over them except for Mike Phillips. And um, 
They're completely surrounded, the whole tent of meeting, and in doing so, it makes this rectangular court that measures 150 feet long by 75 feet wide. Again, that's what the dimensions of the cubits equal up to when you do the conversions. And this place, inside this, these linen walls in this, this courtyard that measured 150 long by 75 feet wide, this is the place where the priest would minister for you and also on behalf of God. They were the intercessors. Now, the holy tent of meeting stood at the west end of the courtyard. So as you walked in through the front door, you would see the, the, the tent of meeting rising up before you at the very back of the court. And before you would be this, this altar of burnt offering and the, and the, and the, um, the uh, bronze uh, uh, laver and, and all these other things that we'll talk about when we, when we get further into the book of Exodus. Um, I don't want to get too far distracted from that, but... But if you notice that, the, that, that, that um, at, the, at the east end, there was this 30-foot-wide entrance that you would walk through. It's described in verses 16 and 17 that led into this enclosure. And so when a person had come to worship and offer the sacrifices at the tabernacle, they'd enter in through this. It was called the gate of the court, the gate of the court. And then they were met by the priests. And when you came with your animal, the first thing that would be done when you, when you came through those gates, through that gate into the tabernacle, is, is the priest would examine your animal, your sacrifice, to make sure that it was without any injury or without any defect. And the worshiper, according to Leviticus chapter 1, verses 1 through 9, now imagine this happening in today's society with, with uh, the, all the animal rights activists and and, um, and, and, and especially in light of the fact that the Bible tells us that the temple is going to be rebuilt. And animal sacrifices will, will, will be reinstituted at that time. Because it's a very graphic and bloody thing that's taking place. Because you'd come in, your animal would be inspected. If you got the go, that your animal was good, then the priest would take your animal, he'd tie it to one of the horns that was on the, the, the altar, the bronze altar, one on each corner. And as the animal was tied there, you, according to Leviticus chapter 1, would take your hand and you would place it upon the head of that animal sacrifice. And while that animal was standing there helplessly and innocently, and your hand upon it, the priest would then slit its throat. Now, uh, yeah, never mind. You can imagine, if you've ever seen an animal shot or slaughtered, that's not... It's... It's, you realize that death comes at a cost, that your sacrifice, that there's a cost there, that the life is bleeding out. It wasn't like it just quietly closed its eyes and lay down. Okay, you can imagine the rest. Uh, but then the animal would be prepared in accordance to the law. There were certain procedures that took place with the animal depending upon the type of sacrifice that you were making. And then the priest would take it and it would offer it upon the bronze altar according to the regulations given throughout the first seven chapters of the book of Exodus. I would encourage you to go and read it. It's fascinating. Now, like there was only one way to enter into the holy tent of meeting, to the holy place and the most holy place where, where, where the, the, the high priest would go, there, there, we see here also that there's only one entrance, only one way to enter into this court, the court of the tabernacle. And therefore, ultimately we see that there's only one way to get to the altar of God, the bronze altar, one way. And when we continue reading how God repeatedly commanded Moses, like he does here in verse 8 of chapter 27, commanded Moses over and over again to make everything in exact accordance to the pattern that God had given to him, we should see that when God puts up a fence, and it doesn't have to be um, this, this applies to, and when I was studying, I'll just put this, when I was reading and studying through this, God's put certain fences in my life. He has. You know, the Bible says that we're no longer under the law. The, 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 uh, there's still the moral law, which applies, obviously, but the, the, the Old Testament law, with all the rules and the regulations and the sacrificial system, we're no longer under that. Jesus is the fulfillment of that. But we have something greater. We have the Holy Spirit of God living inside of us, and we've talked about this before, where God has taken the Holy Spirit, given us a new nature, but He's written His law upon our hearts. 
And we, we live our lives by the, by the direction and leadership of, and the guidance of the Holy Spirit into what's right and what's wrong, and it will always be in accordance to what God's put in His Word anyway. But in that, there's these gray areas where, where and, and, and there are non-gray areas for sure, but there are these gray areas, you know? Is it all right for a Christian to have a drink? Well, the Bible says, just don't be drunk. But for some of us, we shouldn't drink at all. God's spoken to us about it. You know, there's these gray areas that can be places of legalism where, where other Christians will want to rule and reign your life, and you just go, no, thank you, I got the Holy Spirit, Okay? Unless they can come to you with chapter and verse, and then you want to hear. But, you know, on the other hands, you want to be listening to people as well. But what God does through the Holy Spirit for us is he puts up boundaries. You know what a boundary does? Is to keep things out in order to keep us safe, right? He does. God puts boundaries in our lives, fences in our lives. And what we see here is, is that when God puts up a fence and he assigns the only way in, right? He says, no, you go this way and you only go this way. What we see is that nobody has the authority to even question it or change it. And that including, includes ourselves. You know, and this is never more true. We can talk about the application in regards to our individual lives. But when it comes to the issue of salvation, it's never more true in regards to the door of salvation the way through that God has made. And this is why Jesus, who claimed in, first, in John chapter 10, verse 9, to be the only door and the only way to God, also said this, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. There's, there's no middle ground there, guys. And these words explain why the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 4 also says this, in verse 12, nor is there any other salvation for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And I point this out not only because of what we're reading here, but because, you know what, in today's society, where so many people like to think that every way is acceptable God to God, this fundamental truth about Jesus being the only way to God cannot be overstated since this belief of many ways to God is a lie that leads to death. It's a lie that leads to death. And you and I have walked through that door because of our faith in Christ. We found salvation. We live within the, the confines that God has set up. We don't build it in a construct that seems right to us. We do it in a way that God has set forth. And that principle is reiterated over and over and over again. And that's why there's only one door into the holy place of meeting and one door into this tabernacle that leads to the altar of God where sacrifices are offered, where thanksgiving is offered, where praise is offered, where, where forgiveness of sin is found. And guys, in this pluralistic society that we live in where there's so many different ways to God, we have to be willing to tell the people that believe this lie that leads to death the truth in love. We have to. Now, this altar that you would see when it was accessed through this, this one and only entrance into the tabernacle, it was, it, was, it was called the bronze altar, the altar of burnt offering. And it, as, you, as you get here, it was a hollow box. It measured seven and a half feet wide, four and a half feet high. It was also made of cacia wood, and this was times it was covered with bronze. And like silver, bronze also has a spiritual representation according to the law and the sacrificial system. In that, bronze is identified with judgment, for, with purification. And, and passages of Scripture like Numbers chapter 21 and Deuteronomy chapter 28, you can go and read both of those. It, it details, it illustrates this for us, this spiritual representation to bronze. So, Unlike the golden altar of incense that sat in the holy place before the veil of separation, this bronze altar was a place of judgment, a place of bloodshed, a place of death. In fact, the Hebrew word that is used here for this altar in the context of this passage, it literally means this, the killing place. And in Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, it reminds us, it says this, Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. In light of this, it's important to point out that the, not, not only the position, it's, it's important to point out but that, the, this, that the position of the bronze altar and the purpose of this bronze altar alongside all the other 
construction of the tabernacle, it, it, it made it clear that, that to, to, to anyone who, who entered in through the, the gate of the tabernacle, through the door that led into the court of the tabernacle, it made it clear that the only way then to get into the presence of God, right, where the tent of meeting rested behind it, the only way to get into the presence of God, it began at the bronze altar where the innocent victims died as a sacrifice for guilty sinners. The only way into the presence of God is through the sacrifice, through the blood, through the judgment. And because of this, we should see how that we should see how the bronze altar ultimately clearly points us forward to the cross of Calvary where Jesus the Son of God died for our sins and for the sins of this world. Now, when we begin to study about the sacrificial system in the Levitical priesthood later on in the book of Exodus, in the remaining chapters, we're going to see that there are many different kinds of sacrifices that the people could bring, but all of them were an act of worship, an act of devotion to God. Every one of them, no matter which one it was. But in Exodus chapter 29, we will see that, that in relationship to the bronze altar and the ministry of the priests and what they were called to do, in, Acts, in, in Exodus 29, we're to see that the priests were commanded, this blows my mind, they were commanded to bring a burnt offering of two lambs day by day continually to this bronze altar, 365 days a year, without fail, two lambs. Even if no other worshiper came, two lambs were offered up on this bronze altar. One in the morning, and then it says in, in Exodus chapter 29, and one lamb at twilight between the two days. And in, in, it says this in, in, in Exodus chapter 29, verse 42, God explained this and he said this. He said, this shall be a continual burnt offering throughout your generations at the door of the tabernacle and meeting before the Lord where I will meet to speak with you. So the relationship with God, the fellowship with God, God says here, is directly tied to this continual sacrifice, this continual sacrifice. And this continual offering of a burnt sacrifice at the beginning of the day and at the end of the day on the bronze altar is an awesome picture of, of, of total dedication to the Lord. He's what I begin with. He's what I end with. Is he not the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of all of creation? And so, so it should be true of those who have fellowship with him, of those who speak with him. Remember in Romans, oh, uh, and, you know, and, and, and so when we see that, we see that day by day, continually, we too should begin our day and end our day with a sacrifice. And the Bible tells us the sacrifice we are to offer is the sacrifice of ourselves, presenting ourselves to our God as a living sacrifice. Here I am. I am yours. I am yours. Why? Because he is mine. In Romans chapter 12, we had a guest speaker a few weeks ago teach out of this passage of Scripture, Jeff from U-Turn for Christ, this idea of a living sacrifice. In Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 2, Paul writes and he says this, I beseech you, brethren, therefore by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves, your bodies, as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And then he says this, it's your reasonable service. We talk about common sense in today's world and how it's just absent from, from everyday society, right? Common sense it just escapes people. And we go, common sense is not so common. But in the spiritual world, in the spiritual life that we've been called to, there's a certain amount of spiritual common sense. And when you realize that God gave everything for you so that we might receive everything that he has for us, isn't it reasonable for us to go then, he, yeah, he's my Lord, he's my provider, he's my protector, he's my savior, I only have life in him and through him. Does it not then make sense to go for us in the morning when I rise up? I go, my life is yours. When I lay my head down to go to sleep, I close it out and I go, my life is yours. And Paul writes in Romans, he goes, 
it's our reasonable service. It's reasonable. It makes sense. And therefore, he goes, as a result of this, the in-between times, from the moment that our feet hit to the ground, when we go, Lord, my, I'm yours, and you are mine, to the, to the time that we lay our heads down to go back to sleep, I am yours and you are mine. Paul says this, in the in-between time, do not be conformed to this world. You're different. We're different. We're kept separate when we're in Him. So do not be conformed to this world, but by the trans, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why? So that we may prove what is the good and acceptable and perfect will of God. In other words, where we where we are, our lives are a light, a testimony to the world. It just simply says this: It says, God's the best. You can have all that other stuff, but as for me, give me Jesus. He's the best. Why don't you want that? Why do you want this? Because it's the best. God's will is the best. What God has is good and acceptable. His will is the best. And when we live like that, when we start with God, when we end with God, you know what we're doing is we're proving to the rest of the world around us that there's nothing better. But it's important to point out that Jesus... Guys, it's important to point out that Jesus Christ is the only altar that we can daily come to in order to present ourselves as a living sacrifice. He's the only altar. But yet there are a lot of other altars out there that we as believers can find ourselves bowing down to daily. Offering our bodies as a living sacrifice to these false idols that ring up in our lives through this world that we get so tempted by and sucked into that the world offers that the Bible says is passing away. Jesus is the only altar that we can come to daily and present ourselves as a living sacrifice. And here's the thing about it. I'm always amazed by this. Two things that really I just can't reconcile in my heart and mind, even though I believe it true. The first one is, is that there's going to be, when the Lord comes to get us, it says there's going to be a marriage feast of the Lamb that takes place in heaven where the bride, where that relationship between the bride and the bridegroom is consummated, the church, us. And it says during that marriage feast, we're going to sit down together. But it also tells us that Jesus is going to serve us that meal at that time. I don't know about you, but every time I think about that, I, just, I don't know how that can happen. My King, my Lord, my Savior, on that day, He's going to be there and He's going to come sit down. Sup with me. Let me serve you. And here's the other thing that blows my mind. As the Scripture tells us that when we get to heaven and we see Jesus, He's still going to have the, the wounds in His hands. His pierced body. His body, His glorified body. We're going to receive a glorified body too. One that's free from the debt of sin, from the effects of sin. No more aches, no more pains, no more scars, no more... Whatever. I don't know what it's going to look like, but it's not going to look like this. But Jesus, in His glorified body, it says He has one as well. It still bears the wounds of the cross. That blows my mind. And I go, why? And when we understand this concept of being a living sacrifice and Christ being the only altar that we bow down to, that we serve, that we offer our sacrifices to, the sacrifices of ourselves, we see that Jesus is the only altar to, bear, to, 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 to bow down to, to present ourselves to when we look at His body because it reminds us that He once and for all took care of our sin problem. And so rather than looking at the veil, we look to Christ, the Restorer. Therefore, we who believe, it says that we become a holy priesthood. And as a result of that holy priesthood that we now are, we're called in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 5, to offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God. Through Christ Jesus, it says in Peter 2, 5. Offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Christ Jesus. Where's our sacrifice? At the altar of Christ. He is our altar. In addition to daily presenting our bodies, I just want to give you a little bit of, of the whole picture to him. In addition to, to daily presenting our bodies to him, which is our reasonable service, we're called in Philippians 4, verse 18, to offer up our material wealth. 
Everything that I have has been given to me by him, and therefore it's his. It's his. How much? 100%. It's his. In addition to that, Hebrews chapter 13, verses 5 or 15 through 16 says that we're to also offer up as a sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice, our praise and our good works. Are we called to good works? Yeah. God's appointed them to us through Christ Jesus so that we might walk in them. He has a good work for us. But it's even that good work isn't so that we can go, ha, ha, look what I do. It's a sacrifice. It's a laying down before the Lord. He's given us the good work to walk in, something good to do. He equips us to be able to do it. And then we go, the glory's yours. It's a sacrifice to you. It reminds me of the day when we get to heaven. It says that we're going to be rewarded with certain crowns. I don't know what that looks like. But these crowns that we receive, the Bible tells us that when the Lord appears, you know what we do? We take them off and we go, we throw them at his feet. It's because of him. And we offer these good works, these lives that we've been given to live, that glorify Christ, that honor Christ, where we get to do the work that he's called us to do. We go, it's because of you. It's a sacrifice, our praise and our good works. And then, guys, lastly, and and what I found in Psalm 51, verse 17, another spiritual sacrifice is humility. And in Psalm 51, verse 17, humility is a choice. You know, and we humble ourselves in submission to the Lord when we come to Christ and receive Him as our Savior. But daily, daily, in the morning, all the way through, into the evening, our humility needs to be offered up to Christ as a spiritual sacrifice. And in, Hebrew, in Psalm 51, verse 17, it says this, through a broken spirit and a contrite heart. Now, before we wrap things up, the worship team wants to come up. We're going to end with this. Um, I want to take a moment to point out that even though it's not mentioned in these verses, we see that in addition to the, to the tabernacle court being a place where sacrifices were offered up to the Lord on this altar, and then we too, spiritual sacrifices, Christ being our altar, we also see from so many other places in Scripture that the sacrifice, now these, these two words seem to be contradictory in my mind. There's an irony here, and it causes a tension inside of me. But there's a great explanation for it, because it says that the sacrifice of thanksgiving and the sacrifice of praise were a regular part of what was being offered up to God into the ta- in the tabernacle court. Not just an ab- not, just not a, a, a animal sacrifice or, 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 or a grain offering, all these other offerings and sacrifices that are detailed through the law. It, 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 you see over and over again that sacrifice was also a sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise before the Lord. And when you begin to think about that, it's like, why should thanksgiving and praise be a sacrifice? Well, sometimes it is. And what I mean is that we, it's a sacrifice because do you always feel like praising and, and, and giving thanks? No, we don't always feel like it. Why? Because the circumstances of our life, the circumstances of our situation bring forth other kinds of feelings. But what was being taught to us here when we see that in the court, in the tabernacle, before the presence of God, sacrifice of thanksgiving and praise was being offered because it, it, it's, it's with the understanding that, that, that even when I don't feel like it, God's still worthy of it. And I then deny myself because of who God is and give Him what He rightfully deserves. My thanks and my praise no matter what's going on in my life. Listen, I want to close with three verses that speaks about this. Psalm 116, verses 17 through 19. I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving, and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I will pay my vows to the Lord now in the presence of all of His people, in the courts of the Lord's house, in the midst of you, all Jerusalem. Praise the Lord. Psalm 100, verse 4. I enter into His gates, the gate of the court. I enter into His gates with thanksgiving and into His courts with praise. Be thankful to Him and bless His name. And Psalm 135, verses 1 and 2. I praise the Lord 
Praise the name of the Lord. Praise Him, O you servants of the Lord. You who stand in the house of the Lord, in the courts of the house of our God, praise the Lord. Will you guys stand? Guys, sometimes it's true, we don't feel like praising the Lord, worshiping the Lord, giving thanks to God. But when we get our eyes off of ourselves, eyes off of our circumstances, and offer ourselves as a living sacrifice to Him, focused on who Jesus is, coming to that altar of His flesh being offered up for us, remembering who He is and what He's done for us, in spite of everything that's going on around us, you can't help but to go the sacrifice of thanks into the sacrifice of praise. I would encourage you this morning with this last song of worship and throughout the rest of the day that, that, that your, your problems and your situations that you have, God knows. God knows. And He's got His eye on you. He's got His eye on your circumstances. And you know what that does? That frees us up to keep our eyes on Him. Mm-hmm. Lord, thank You, Father, for what You've done for us. Thank You, God, for these pictures that are so relevant to our lives through this place of worship that you created for your people, for this place of fellowship that you created for your people before your son Jesus came and made it possible for you to live inside of us, for us to have constant access to you, where there is no longer the separation that comes as a result of our sin, but there's fellowship and communion and koinonia, intimate fellowship with you as a heavenly father for now and for the rest of eternity. And God, may that truth fill our hearts with joy this morning. In Jesus' name we pray.